you do hear about, and this has been, you know, sort of studied around the the confidence, not competence, but confidence gap in women. And so I would encourage, you know, the women listening to the extent that you feel like, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't have this. I don't have that. You know, make sure you're purposefully building a network of people who prop you up and really shine a light on your value in practice speaking up. If you if you don't, if you haven't, um, women are historically allowed behaviors like within a very narrow range before it's the Goldilocks, you know, you're too much of this or too little of that. And so, you know, but practice in safe settings um, where you can stretch outside of that. Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. My name is Michi DeWitt. I'm one of the co-directors for the Women Who Code San Diego Network. I'm really excited today to be joined with Christy Carrigal. Christy is a SVP Talent Management and Diversity and Inclusion at Arch Capital Group. Prior to that, she served in a range of HR leadership roles at Willis Towers Watson. Christy lives in Weston with her partner, Reed, her four teenage children, and four dogs. In her spare time, she loves to cook and entertain and is currently re-upping her scuba certification with her 16-year-old son. Well, let's start off with an easy question. Could you start by telling us a little bit more about your career background? Sure. I actually started, um, my academic background is in social work. So um, I had way back when worked with homeless families, striving for self-sufficiency, um, and also um, worked in an in intensive outpatient treatment program for chemically dependent women. So, um, you know, different, much different setting and experience prior. So when I was looking to kind of move to the next stage, I had no clue whatsoever where to go, what to do, like, what is an org structure? You know, I worked in nonprofit um, in, you know, kind of mental health services and social services. So I happened into, I signed up with a temp agency and I just wanted to get experience in different industry just to say like, what is the culture? What is the vibe? You know, how do I figure this out? Landed in um, a comp and Ben's team for for a company then called Towers Perrin. It was a, a growing company of about five thousand at that time, per, per, uh, predominantly consultancy, HR capital consulting, but also some um, risk services, so insurance and reinsurance. So over time, there was so much churn on the team that I kept just sort of raising my hand. You know, I can do that. I can do that. And so, um, and there was born a 19-year career uh, at a company that eventually became when I left Willis Towers Watson. So, and I've been at my um, at Arch for two years, which has been phenomenal as well. First, I love that you just kept raising your hand and advocating for yourself, and and that led to this really great career that you've had so far. I also your your background is. A lot different than a lot of people would see in uh, in tech and, and maybe DEI work. Do you feel like that background that you have in social work influenced your decision to work in diversity and inclusion? A million times over. So it's really just focused on people and and the connection between thoughts, behavior, and feelings, which is just what drives all of us. It doesn't matter if it's in a mental health setting or in a corporate setting. Um, and if you know, you know, if you studied change leadership within an organization, it's about, you know, the why, what drives and motivates people. So the two common threads, I would say, are one, irrespective, again, of setting, it's, tr- it's wanting to bring out the best and help people bring out their best um, it, at work. And then the, the equal kind of path is, um, maybe it's a little bit, you know, I digress too much, but um, with psychology at the time, it was very focused on disease and, and individual and disease, um, whereas social work broadened out the aperture to include context. So what's going on culturally, uh, socially, socioeconomically, et cetera. And that 
I've had a lifelong fascination with culture. And so cultural construction of reality, you know, which is so different, um, storytelling, just all of that. So that's a piece too, that you bring in both with cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, et cetera, appreciating differences as a, you know, a rich, you know, resource to be mined is, is just a natural kind of a thing for me. So um, I think definitely that that has helped. And I think my approach to, to DNI or DEI, whatever you want to call it these days, is, is really just grounded in that, you know, the rich resource we have in all, you know, in all humankind, if we're, if we're able to create an environment where everyone is able to show up and kind of contribute uh, equally and equitably. That's, that's really great. You're talking about creating an environment. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, more about what your role specifically at Arch Capital is. Yes. So when I arrived on the scene in 2020, it was two weeks after the shutdown, um, which was an interesting time for so many of us, but to start a new role. But what helped tremendous, so, so the role itself was brand new, the sort of looking after in the head of talent management and diversity and inclusion at that time, the talent management aspect of it was really focused on, you know, kind of the, the building blocks of some succession planning, talent reviews and that sort of thing. You may remember the chronology was right around the time that um, the murder of George Floyd happened. And so that really, like so many companies, you know, catapulted us into conversations that we hadn't had before as a company. But sort of my charge when I when I came in was fi- help us finalize the strategy. Like, what are we doing? How do we make an impact? How do we, um, can, you know, let's launch some employee networks, which we call networks, some call them ERGs. I think the more modern kind of phrasing is, is our thought is around professional networking. So that's the term we use, as well as um, finding a fit for purpose um, kind of experience to help people understand what inclusive leadership is. So all of that had begun. And then, of course, as I said, the conversation just got really intense quickly because of what was happening and because of the real palpable, you know, fear and outrage that people were experiencing. So all of that was, you know, the tilt, I guess, of my role to date has been toward really trying to um, move us from intent to impact in the DNI space. And it sounds like everything you're doing, there's a lot of, I mean, you said intent, but intentionality behind it. You're not, it's not just talking about inclusion just for the sake of talking about inclusion. It's, it's making sure that you have that impact, which is really important. Yes. And in fact, you know, it's good that, that you reminded me when we were having the initial discussions about, you know, about our strategy, like what's what's our focus, what's our mission, our CEO, Mark Grandison, was crystal clear that he does not want this to be about a bunch of words and good intentions that um, he, which is, you know, phenomenal. It's it's what every D, DNI leader wants to hear is that this is really about making changes that are meaningful and, and actually change behaviors and outcomes. Absolutely. You've touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to ask specifically, why should companies care about inclusion and diversity? Yeah, I mean, I think like with without sort of going to the kind of mom and apple pie, it's absolutely, you know, mission critical for any company today to compete in the talent space, in the talent space, but also in terms of products and innovations. If you're not to, you know, there, you always hear about it's, it's the yin and the yang of you know, you, you, you need to access a broad swath of thought, which comes from di- people's different backgrounds, experiences, cultures, et cetera. If you're not at, tapping into all of that, you're, you're restricting, you know, the range of, of in collective group intelligence, basically. So there's that piece of it. But then also, if you're not creating the environment where people feel safe, 
um, that they can be themselves, that they can say something without fear of a personal um, kind of devaluation um, or negative judgment. That's the other piece that we've been working hard at is to teach the behaviors that reinforce active listening and empathy um, and, and making sure that we bring everyone in and we ask opinions like nobody wants to sit there like a stump, like we value everybody. We need you to come and, and participate and play. Yeah, that sounds great. And I know for me, I want to work somewhere where I feel like I can bring my full authentic self and I'm not hiding or having to tamp down like certain parts of my personality. I want to be able to be myself at work. And I feel like then I'm a better employee when I can be myself. And just when you said that you lit up, I don't know if you know that, but like, yeah. that's what you see. The difference is someone sitting there mm-hmm. versus lighting up. And we want everyone to feel like they can light up. Absolutely. This goes really well into the next question I have, which is, We see so many companies that talk about how they value diversity, and they seem to truly have genuine intentions to build a diverse team. But at the end of the day, we just don't see that diversity reflected in the teams that they have. So how can companies turn that good intention into a real impact when they're hiring? Um, It's a great question. It's one that we're wrestling with because the truth is, and the real hard, cold facts are that the day job sometimes gets in the way of it's hard work to do things differently and to learn new ways and, and it's hand-to-hand combat in terms of changing individual kind of behaviors and educating people one by one about the benefits of like, you know, of looking in a different place, of not calling the same recruiter that's gotten you 10 people historically really fast, but they all look the same, you know, or they all think the same. It, it's a slow process. I think at the end of the day, though, it's kind of top down and bottoms up accountability the intent comes with let's do this and the impact comes with like how did we do and like let's show let's see how we're improving directionally let's tell the story behind the numbers about you know what's working what's not let's um you know and you you've probably heard this before let's treat this like any other strategic business objective and let's make sure that we're we're getting the results that we need to see. So there's a lot that goes, it's, it's just, you know, you're not going to see the change in the numbers in a year, even sometimes you can make little progress, but you know, it goes back, it sort of goes, it goes a little like this before you start to see meaningful change. What I've been buoyant about is that the feedback that we hear both from engagement survey and also from what you hear from people saying the culture is, feels so different. It's so great that we have these networks. We're having this conversation that I never thought we would have. Uh, insurance and financial services tends to be a couple steps behind the curve in some of these areas uh, compared to other industry. Um, And so we really, um, what I love about Arch is that we're still at a point in our growth that um, in an evolution from, you know, in a real entrepreneurial kind of culture where we can be agile and we can kind of make up um, ground pretty quickly. And it also sounds like the internal networks that you were talking about and like the, the, the ERGs also help foster a company where people feel comfortable. Again, like talking about bringing your authentic self to work because it doesn't do any good to just hire those people. You have to get them to stay at your company. Uh, 100%. 100%. And you can be running, you know, otherwise you're like running on the treadmill. You're not getting anywhere because, and that, and that's it. And, and I personally just who I am and, you know, you can, you're meeting me, you know, here, but like, I couldn't work at a place that didn't have that integrity of really following through that, it, you know, that, it, that it didn't really mean it, you know, nobody really in, in my role kind of wants to work at, at that sort of environment. That makes absolute sense. You mentioned that historic insurance companies are a little bit behind or they, they, at least they, they sound like they're behind. So what, what do you want women to know or women in tech to know about Arch Capital and the insurance space in general? 
I wouldn't say it's a best kept secret because we don't want to keep the secret. We kind of do, we kind of don't. But it honestly, it like no little person like kind of wakes up as a four-year-old and dreams of being in the insurance industry. It just doesn't happen. I mean, you see a lot of people who, you know, because they had an uncle or a parent who was in the industry, like that's how they wound up there because they were exposed. But you just don't know what it is. Honestly, if I'm really honest, it's like when I first heard, you know, you think of Willie Loman and like that is not glamorous, you know, it's, um, uh, you just think of somebody who's um, so, so the, it, there's a perception and a branding of the industry that we are trying to change bit by bit. So what I would say is check us out. It's great on so many fronts from a balanced point of view, from a career growth point of view, because there's so many different facets of the insurance industry and you don't need to necessarily have you know, a PNC backgrounds, you know, the, the, like you can learn some of the technical stuff as you go, but from a cultural standpoint, it's a phenomenal place to be. We're constantly in search of IT and tech-based roles. So, so come and check it out. You can, um, I think my contact details um, will be shared. So, you know, I'm happy to speak with people about what, what it's all about, or even connect you even better, connect you with some folks on the team who can tell you more. You just said the culture is, uh, is great at Arch Capital. Could you tell us a little bit more about Arch Capital and their culture? And specifically, what do you enjoy about the company culture? Yeah, we just, um, so we just celebrated our 20 year anniversary. So you're, it is a very company in its teenage years, you know, literally, and just still maintains that real entrepreneurial spirit of experimentation, of openness to change, of, you know, kind of looking ahead and kind of figuring it out and figuring out the best way and, and not being afraid to try, you know, to try new things. That's one thing. The other is that you'll hear, and I actually just hired someone new on my team. And she was like, Christy, she's like, everyone is so nice. Like it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> I know that sounds like pretty basic, but that's what every, every new person, including myself, I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone is so nice. It's a culture that really cares about people. And you're not going to hear someone say something in a meeting where you can tell someone's upset. We're going to stop the meeting and be like, are you know, like we're just sort of like normal people. That's another piece you hear like a culture that I know it sounds weird to sound familial. You don't really want your work to be like a family, but it, we try to emulate the best principles of that, of caring about people, but also enabling them again to, to do their best work, but achieve balance and um, resilience and all of that. Yeah. And I, I like the point of the fact, like you don't necessarily want your work to your family because your work is not your family, but I do think you can take those good parts, right? The caring about your, your coworkers and your employees. And like, you can bring that into work without trying to, you know, that saying, oh, well, we're like a family because you're not, but you do care about each other. And that's, and that's still really great. Like in, in all ways, except for where it gets weird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's pivot away from work a little bit. What are you passionate about outside of work? Uh, yeah. So my, you know, my biggest sort of hobby is I just love to cook from an early age. I used to try food and be like, I think I can make that at home. And I do like a science experiment and usually it didn't always come out well, but anyway, so over time and years of practice, that's one of my favorite hobbies where you can just totally kind of get into space out, put on some music and cook because then it's like, the, you know, the cultural tie I like to say is on my father's side, he's from Barcelona huge family. So it's like, you know, that whole kind of family focus and celebration and, and spending that time together. So centered around, you know, food and drink. And then I think I mentioned, you mentioned it in, the, in my bio, I, you know, exercise definitely all forms um, that I try to kind of get. That's my balance is, 
is making sure I feel my body feels strong. I'm getting enough um, sleep and, and that kind of thing truly though is so important to showing up and kind of being your best self. But then the fun thing I think this year, one of the fun things I'm doing is I haven't gone scuba diving since before I had kids. And finally I'm like, you know, um, let's, let's just do it. My, my middle son who's 16 is really interested. So we're going to get, I'm going to recertify with him. Cause those of you who know, it actually is like a pretty rigorous kind of, um, you know, course to study, to get, to get into understand, um, to be safe underwater. So we're going to do that. I'm looking forward to that as well. And that's bringing scuba and family together in one. So it's all coming full circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Can I ask a random question? Of have course. you ever gone, have you ever gone scuba diving in San Diego? No, but in the Pacific, yes. Is it, okay. is it nice? I've never been scuba diving, but I do hear that the, there's like kelp forests in La Jolla that are supposed to be amazing and out of this world. So put it on your list. Uh, I'll put it on my list. I am. Um, I did. I got certified on the West coast and it was freezing. Okay. It was a little bit, yeah. I think I might've had a panic attack underwater because yeah. cold water like makes you start to hyperventilate, whatever. So I'll, I might have to ease into that. I'm going to start with the Caribbean wall. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely cold over here. <laughs> All right. Final question. What is your pro tip for our listeners? For women? Yeah. So you, you do hear about, and this has been, you know, sort of studied around the, the confidence, not competence, but confidence gap in women. And so I would encourage, you know, the women listening to the extent that you feel like, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't have this. I don't have that. You know, make sure you're purposefully building a network of people who prop you up and really shine a light on your value in practice speaking up. If you, if you don't, if you haven't, um, women are historically allowed behaviors like within a very narrow range before it's the Goldilocks, you know, you're too much of this or too little of that. And so, you know, but practice in safe settings um, where you can stretch outside of that. Um, and there's, there is a good, um, there's a book that I find useful called How Women Rise, co-authored um, by Sally Helgeson, but it was a rewrite of the book that you may be familiar with, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, probably not saying that perfectly, but it was rewritten with, with a female audience instead of what was prior. The prior version was a study of only men. And it just talks about the typical ways that we get in our own way. There are always, you know, with women, with racial differences, with cultural differences, there can be systemic barriers, but then we also have to recognize their barriers within ourselves, that we hold our own selves back by our notions about what we should or shouldn't do, or, you know, I'm an expert at this, so I'm going to keep doing this. Well, actually being an expert can prevent you from getting to that next level because everyone counts on you for that. So it's it's very nuanced. Um, we, we've read it in a lot of contexts, and one of the things I'll say is that everybody finds something in there for them where they at least one or two things were like, ah, that's me. I've got to work on that. So that's my other um, little, little tip of plug for that. And I'm not getting any kind of, um, you know, kickbacks from that. I met Sally one time. It was a um, privilege and a pleasure to meet her, but, um, but that's just from my own kind of um, panoramic of leadership development books. Can you say the title of that book again for our listeners? How Women Rise how women rise. Okay. I'll definitely put that on my reading list. Um, that's also just good. The advice you gave is good advice for women in tech, but also really women in any, uh, any career. So that's just, it's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for sharing it. Well, thank you. Awesome. Well, that's all we have today. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to speak with us. I really enjoyed our conversation today. My pleasure and privilege. And you're wonderful to talk to Mishi. You too. Thank you. 
Get ready to supercharge your career with Women Who Code Career Nav, where you'll hear real-world advice from tech leaders and insiders about achieving your professional dreams. This week, we're celebrating World Environment Day, which was Sunday, June 5th, by highlighting a talk about different ways that technologists can make a difference in wildlife conservation, given by public speaker and science coordinator, Gracie Ermey. Enjoy. So diving into uh, what does it actually look like to build technology for wildlife conservation? Um, a lot of the, or almost all the projects that I've worked on actually have had to do with something called a wildlife survey which is a non-invasive method that scientists can use to study the animals that they are wanting to learn more about. Um, so they don't disturb the animals at all by using this method, which um, involves collecting a ton of data about the animal. So that can be uh, images that they're collecting, could be video footage, um, sound recordings is, a bit, is getting more and more popular um, as a way to just learn more about animals out in their habitat, what's going on out there. And you can get a lot of really uh, amazing information from a wildlife survey. So you can learn things like uh, population size. You can learn about where animals are living, different um, uh, what animals are living in different locations. Uh, you can learn health information about the species and the individuals in the population um, and more. So they're this really amazing tool um, but one of the biggest challenges with the wildlife survey is you collect a lot, a lot, a lot of data, like hundreds of thousands of images, thousands of hours of video recording or sound recording. And then usually someone has to sit there and look through all the videos or listen to all the, the acoustic recordings um, and pick out whatever important information they're trying to pick out of those, that big pile of data. And this can just take a really, really long time. Um, and it's not the sometimes not task to have to do for thousands of hours. So um, what my team and I work on is applying machine learning to this problem and getting um, algorithms to automatically do parts of this not so exciting um, part of wildlife research so that we can save scientists time and allow them to just spend uh, their time and energy on the stuff that we really do need humans to be doing. Um, because wildlife researchers do amazing work and it's so important. Um, and so if we can save them time in one area, they can just, you know, amplify their work um, and do even more great stuff. So that's what we do kind of generally, but more specifically, um, I wanted to tell you about this one project, which is very um, close to my heart and close to me physically as well. Um, so. We've been working on this project related to the southern resident killer whales, um, which are a specific population of killer whales, and they live in the Salish Sea. And the Salish Sea happens to be right in my backyard, essentially. It's the water off the coast of Washington um, in the Puget Sound, all the way up into parts of Canada. And so um, the Salish Sea is, yeah, right in my backyard. And these whales spend a large majority of their year in the Salish Sea. Um, and so there are lots of different uh, populations of killer whales kind of all over the world. But these ones in particular are very, um, a, a lot of groups are working really hard um, to protect this specific population because they are so endangered. There are only 75 individuals left in this population. And um, so a lot of people are working really hard to increase those numbers. 
and kind of some of the factors that are affecting them uh, the most are, um, first of all, they live in a very vessel traffic heavy area. Um, you can imagine like the water off of the coast of Seattle um, is there's a lot of ship uh, shipping activity and all kinds of stuff happening out in that water. And so um, along with waters all over the place, a lot of marine mammals are experiencing this um, this factor, but uh, those ships create a lot of noise and there's just a lot of um, traffic that the whales have to kind of contend with. Um, and the noise and the stress can cause a lot of stress, um, which can impact them negatively health-wise. Um, they also only eat salmon, uh, preferably Chinook salmon. They're picky eaters. And so um, the Chinook salmon used to be much bigger and there used to be a lot more of them. And so the whales have a hard time finding enough food to eat. Um, and then the third thing is just ocean pollution in general and toxins in the water um, because killer whales are a top predator in the food chain. Um, as you move up the food chain, the toxins build up more and more in those animals that are higher in the food chain. And so um, they just have more toxins in their bodies and um, that can also, as you would imagine, impact their health negatively. So with this project, um, we are very lucky to get to work with researchers at Sea Life Response Rehabilitation and Research, which is another um, organization that's in the Pacific Northwest. And they have been studying these specific whales for many years now. Um, and they do that by flying a drone out over the water. And they take these amazing pictures like this one that you saw on the previous slide. Um, and from these pictures, they, do, they use a technique called photogrammetry, which is literally just taking measurements from a photo. Um, and they can uh, do specific measurements along the bodies of each individual in a picture. And that through those measurements, they can estimate and understand the health of that individual. So it's this really awesome technique that they use um, and super you know, non-invasive. They don't have to go near the whales. They don't have to do you know, any poking or prodding of the whales and they can basically do a health checkup just through these photos. So it's really amazing stuff that they're able to do. Um, and you can kind of see here uh, some of the, the idea of the measurements that they take kind of all down the body um, to estimate the condition of the body. And one of the things specifically that they're measuring for is something called peanut head syndrome. So this is the same whale and her picture was taken in three different years. And visibly, you can obviously see she's gotten much skinnier as time has gone on. Um, but what you can also start to see is signs of peanut head, which is where the whale starts to lose fat behind their eye patches, um, these white patches on their head. And as they lose fat there, their head literally starts to become like shaped like a peanut. Um, and so with the measurements that the scientists are doing, they are specifically measuring for, um, I guess they're specifically measuring for a lot of things, but additionally measuring for signs of peanut head because that can be a sign that the whale is declining in health. So, um, but then additionally in more happy sort of news, they can also measure for um, things like pregnancies and they can track pregnancies through this method as well. So that's a little bit more happy um, and exciting to see. <laughs> so where does my team come in? Um, this is, uh, my team, the team that's been working on this project, at least across the top of the screen here. Um, and we've been specifically working uh, very closely with Dr. Fernbach at SR3. Um, and she's so she's one of the marine mammal researchers. And what we have been working on is helping her address 
again, one of the big challenges of the wildlife survey, which is that it just takes a really long time um, to look through all of the data that you collect in a survey. So uh, Dr. Fernbach and her team, when they go out and fly the drone, in a given day, they might take 2,000 photos, up to 2,000 photos. So um, that's, that's a lot of images. Even if you just had to look through those 2,000, that would take a while. But um, if they fly, you know, almost every day for a month, then processing all of the images from one month of flights takes anywhere from four to six months just to process them and actually get to those health assessment numbers at the end. So what my team and I have worked on for about the last year and a half is building them um, a piece of software that they can use, um, a machine learning platform that will automatically do some parts of this health assessment um, gathering process and save them hopefully a lot of time in the end. Um, and we're hoping to go from uh, six months down to six weeks and then hopefully eventually down to six days. Um, and so that's the goal. And uh, Dr. Fernbach and her team have just started using the tool. So we're still um, you know, measuring how, how much time we're saving them and, and continuing to improve the tool. Um, but that is the goal at the end of the project. So one of the things that, um, I, that I've been specifically working on for this tool is creating machine learning algorithm that will automatically recognize which whales are in each image um, because one of the parts of the health assessment process is they have to identify the whales in each image and find the best pictures of each whale in, uh, from the huge batch of images. So you know they're not down there just like perfectly posing for us but we do to do the measurements, the whales need to be super flat um, in the water and also not have any like splashing or anything um, sort of obscuring their body outline. So uh, identifying them is a big part of this process. And so I usually use this slide with um, younger students, but it's still, I think, a fun little activity to do. So how we identify the whales is by looking at their saddle patch on their back. So it's this heart-shaped sort of patch here. And the patterns on that saddle patch are unique to each individual. So you can um, identify if you're an expert, which uh, Dr. Fernbach certainly is, um, you can look at the saddle patches and know who is in each image. Um, but uh, so that's how I've also taught the computer to recognize who is who. So you all can uh, become the marine mammal researchers now and take a look at this picture on the left and guess who you think, I see some guesses in the chat already, so you're already, you're on top of this. Guess who you think it is though, between these four um, options here. And three, two, one, I'm gonna reveal it. Okay, yes, so I saw a lot of guesses for clips, so you were all very correct, good work. Um, and so how I've gotten, uh, I've set up the algorithm to do this is I'm using something called a Siamese network and uh, it basically can compare two images and um, tell you, are these two images the same individual or are they two different individuals? So we compare each new image to a known image of each individual in the population. And uh, the closer to one the, that, the model, <laughs> the, that the number that the model spits out is, um, the more similar it thought those two images were. So for Calypso, 0.96, very close to one it thought that these two pictures of Calypso were very similar, which it was correct in this case. So good to see. Um, but how we actually set this up for the scientists to be able to use um, is we are really wanting to use like a human in the loop sort of um, setup. 
where we're not having the, the machine learning make any final decisions. Um, and so how we set it up is we will show, or the, the scientists will have a new image they're trying to identify. Um, we can show them this uh, grad cam is the technique that I use to display this visualization, which is showing which pixels in the image were the most important to the computer's decision about who it was. And so it's highlighting the saddle patch, which is a really good sign. It's looking at a, a significant feature for identification. Um, and then we'll spit out the top five guesses from the computer so that the scientists can make the final decision. Um, and in this case, actually, the computer's top guess, L55, was correct. So that's that's good. But um, our, our model in the end, uh, about 80% of the time, it does put the correct individual in the top five guesses. So um, we're still working on improving this and trying out some new architectures in addition to the Siamese network um, to see if we can get some better results so, uh, so that we can yeah be more sure of the computer's uh, responses and predictions. So it's been a really fun problem though to think about and to work on. Um, and just quickly, I guess, yeah, we have time for this. So um, I wanted to also just show you what the tool looks like. So this is um, the first version of the tool. Um, this is just the machine learning portion of the tool. So we've kind of split it into two portions and I'll show you the second portion after this, um, which is a more, uh, it's a plugin into ImageJ, which is the tool that the scientists already use to do their measurements. So we kind of split the machine learning out um, for this sort of proof of concept version of what we're building for them. Um, so it's just in this Jupyter notebook that I made, all the machine learning models will kind of run um, and churn for a while so the scientists can step uh, Then they can come back and start reviewing the machine learning models results. Um, so again, like I said, they'll be shown uh, for each image that the model, we do have a model in there that's determining whether or not this image is identifiable um, or predicting whether. So we'll show them all the model determined identifiable images and the top five uh, predictions for who it likely is. And can make a final determination of who they think it is. They can like rotate these images and um, be shown the next five options if they don't see the correct one in the top five. Um, yeah, so let's see, I'll skip ahead a little bit here. And then the model will also, or the, the, the tool can do some sort of sequencing um, calculations based on location in the images and any identifications that were confirmed by the scientists. Uh, it can kind of fill in the gaps in a sequence of images, um, uh, adding some more identifications without the scientists having to explicitly approve each one in a sequence. So that's what it's showing here. It's adding IDs to additional um, detections of whales in the images. And then it will start to show the user um, different images that the model believes it, uh, to be measurable. So any images where we think a measurement could be taken from this image. Um, and how it determines that is by uh, finding different landmarks in the image. And so it can detect things like the blowhole, the eye patches, the dorsal fin um, root, which is like the spot where the dorsal fin meets the back um, and the tail notch. And depending on how many different it found, it can makes a determination of like, this is probably measurable or probably not. And if the user agrees that it's measurable, it'll get copied to a folder of that individual's measurable images. 
Um, and then this is something we're still kind of experimenting with, but we are hoping to use those landmark detections like the snout and the dorsal fin to then project those measurement lines onto the body um, for the user to then refine later on in our second part of the tool. And then uh, in this part, they can just enter some additional metadata uh, for each image. So that's kind of what that part of the tool looks like, just the machine learning portion. And then this is the uh, plugin that we've built to ImageJ, which again is the tool that the scientists already use to do their measurements. And so um, via a CSV file, we can load the machine learning results into user to refine even more. So this is kind of what that side looks like. Um, they can open an image and load in a CSV for this set of images. Um, they can make comments. They can input the animal's ID and their and, and metadata that wasn't already loaded in a CSV. Just skip ahead a little bit because the most exciting part is being able to um, actually do these measurements. So they can input these landmarks um, or the machine, if the machine learning side already um, generated those, it will be projected onto the image and they can kind of move those around to be in the correct spot. And then it will project these guides onto the so that the user then just, uh, this is what, these are the, the important measurements uh, at 5% intervals down the body, they wanna get the width of the animal. So the user can just place those endpoints instead of having to figure out where 5% intervals are down the body. Um, and they can also do, let's see, skipping ahead some measurements um, where the, the tool will help them if a measurement like this one is, uh, is related to multiple different um, landmarks on the animal. So this one is, sorry, the 75% one is related to the top and the bottom of each eye patch. And so the, the tool can kind of project those more complicated measurements onto the body as well if it has the landmarks to go off of. Um, so that's kind of what the tool looks like at this point. We're hoping some next steps, um, not hoping, some next steps definitely are to um, eventually open source the tool so that more researchers can use it. We're expanding to more um, species as well. And uh, also we're gonna be incorporating the machine learning models into the actual UI interface so that it isn't such a two-step process. Um, we hope to make it more of an incorporated tool as we keep working on it. So a lot of exciting stuff to come for this tool. And we're super excited to get to keep working with SR3 and um, possibly some other researchers as well. So now I wanted to go into um, what can what can you do? So um, there's, you know, Vulcan and AI2 uh, do have open positions. So just wanted to plug that as well. If you are interested in working on um, projects like the one I just described, um, we do have open positions. And um, I think once we move to AI2, there will be positions related to wildlife conservation and our projects at Vulcan um, as they shift into AI2. So keep an eye out for that. That's happening in September. Um, but additionally, I wanted to call out some organizations and some volunteer activities as well. Um, in case you know, you're not looking to switch jobs, there are still ways you can contribute to the wildlife conservation 
field, you know, using your amazing skills in technology. Um, so first I wanted to call out um, Wild Me, which is an organization that I've been really lucky to get to learn from this team a lot um, and work a little bit with them. And they really focus on, um, they have this platform called Wild Book, which they've applied to a number of species at this point to be able to use the patterns that to um, identify individuals in the species. Or whale sharks you can see on the left, they've done it for zebras. they have a number of other species as well. Um, and it's, uh, they work really closely with a lot of different scientists um, and have built this really amazing platform. And they also have uh, the opportunity, their, their, their platform is open source. So if you're interested in contributing um, on like a more volunteer basis, they also have that option. Um, I don't know if they have any open positions at the moment, but keep an eye on them for sure if you're interested because they uh, do really, really great work. Um, another kind of moving into the more volunteer opportunities realm, um, I do have more actual organizations that hire people <laughs> in my resource list that I'll share at the end. Um, but I volunteer opportunities. So Orca Sound is a really cool organization. Um, they have a completely open source platform uh, um, hook up to like our microphones that are out underwater. Um, they have hydrophone stations in a few different locations that are listening for orcas. And so their platform uses some bioacoustics and machine learning to automatically you know, flag different sounds that might be heard, but also people can listen to uh, the hydrophones live and sort of flag different things that they hear. So you can contribute on that end of things, or you can get involved with them and um, work on their platform in an open source fashion. So um, they are doing some really cool stuff as well. Check that out for sure. Um, and then one of my favorite platforms uh, for uh, citizen science and data annotation is Zooniverse, um, which they have a, a huge number of projects up on their, their platform where anybody, any age, any, any skill level can um, annotate images for different scientific projects that are happening. So there's, um, these are a few of, uh, so this is um, from Snapshot Yeti, and they have camera traps um, just cameras, you know, at ground level in all different locations, um, collecting images across the Serengeti. Um, and you, so you can go on and try to identify the animals that are seen in these camera trap images. Um, and they'll kind of help you narrow it down based on like pattern and color and how many horns it has, and things like that. Any age, again, I've done this with kids before. It's like a really fun activity to do. And directly contributing to science, you know, these annotations are actually used to, um, you know, further conservation. So it's a really cool way for anyone to contribute. Um, this one on the right is, it was called uh, Cosmological Jellyfish. So apparently in, you know, there's a lot of space projects on, on Zooniverse too. And apparently if um, a galaxy looks like a jellyfish, something with the gas and like different legs will sort of appear that look like a jellyfish, that is relevant to um, what these scientists are studying. So. Um, for this one, you just indicate, does this uh, galaxy look like a jellyfish? Yes or no? Um, so that one is also fun. And there's like projects um, related to history, related to literature, 
um, all kinds of nature, um, conservation projects, a lot of space projects. Um, so kind of anything you're interested in, you can probably help annotate some data in that space on Zooniverse. So check that out for sure. And hopefully someday we will have a project on Zooniverse. We're hoping um, we're starting a project related to bottlenose dolphins and recordings of bottlenose dolphins. Um, so we're hoping to maybe have a citizen science aspect of that project um, and helping to listen to dolphin whistles. So um, if you're interested in that, keep an eye on Zooniverse for that. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.